because it is the book that clearly explains uh, that Christianity is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's about what he has done. It's not about what we do. Now, this morning we are going to conclude with Paul's devastating analysis uh, of man without God. Man under the law. Uh, Man without hope. And until you understand the the deep, uh, deep situation of our sin and the inability of anything that we can do to bring life and to bring hope, uh, then the the grace of God will never sing to you. So let's uh, let's, uh, look at God's word this morning. As Paul concludes uh, his first section in the book of Romans, Man Without God. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Uh, the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, how clear it is, and especially this book of Romans, that sets before us uh, our deep need. And how you've met that need in Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray for those who perhaps have never heard the music of the gospel that you would speak into their lives. Lord, that they would give up on their dastardly good deeds and rest in what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would um, bless the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am waiting on two medical reports from uh, two special people in my life, uh, both ladies. Uh, One is my mother. I found out on Wednesday that she uh, is having a biopsy uh, to see if she might have breast cancer. Uh, The other lady in my life is very important as well. Uh, My daughter, she is... um, Uh, I think she's fine, but she's having blood work done. Uh, She has not felt well lately. 
And uh, so I'd appreciate your prayers uh, for both. Uh, both, fortunately, went quickly to the doctor. And uh, one, one area that I say the difference between men and women is that men tend to go to the doctor a lot quicker. Now, I think there is a reason uh, for that. Uh, men uh, kind of wait till their limbs are falling off. Uh, just last year, uh, Jack, uh, was, before he went to, the, to Furman, off to school, he was waiting in the Oconee River. He cut his foot, uh, thought he broke his toe, came home. I came home from work that night. We looked at Jack's toe. It was kind of red. And, of course, Mary Beth said, we probably need to go see if uh, he needs an X-ray. And I said, well, they X-ray. They're going to tell him it's broken, and they're going to charge me $100. <laughs> so we went to bed. I got up early. I went to work. Nine o'clock the next morning, I get a phone call at work from Mary Beth who said, uh, guess what? We're at the emergency room with Jack. And I said, really, why? And he said, well, the, she said, there's, a, there, there's apparently a bacteria, bacteria in the water uh, in Oconee River, and it's a serious bacteria, and it got into the cut. And the doctor said if we had not brought him in this morning that his leg could have been uh, ready to be amputated within a day and perhaps lost his life. Broken toe. No big deal. But there was a big deal. Uh, there was a disease that was coursing through his veins. Now, why are men like this? Have you noticed? I mean, this is a universal difference between men and women. Well, I think the answer is a, a simple to a certain extent. If you go back and you look at the curse, uh, when God cursed man, the male man, uh, the curse was you shall work by the sweat of your brow. And everything that you do, everything that you produce uh, will bear weeds and thorns and thistles. And so kind of to translate that, for guys, they feel like life is never in control. Uh, they have to... Um, be responsible, they grow, they grow up, they become men, they have to take care of their families, uh, they need to feed their families, they need to put a roof on top of their head, they need to educate them, uh, they need to take them on vacation at least twice a year, uh, then they need to uh, make sure that on top of that, that they tithe. And so for a man to go to the doctor and find out that things really are out of control makes a whole lot worse. So he ignores uh, the reality uh, of what's going on. Well, let me tell you, Paul is trying to say that we all have a condition. And that condition is very serious. In fact, Paul is trying to say in chapter 1 that we need a righteousness from God for the simple reason is that we have no righteousness that all religions of the world and cults and even among us as Christians, we create a religion that says uh, God does this, we must do this, we meet God halfway. And what Paul is trying to say in the first three chapters of Romans is that's impossible. The problem with us as human beings is that when you get the test back, it is not a sickness, but it is 
a cancer. When God comes to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and he's speaking to the condition of human beings, he, he basically says this, I am grieved that I've made man. I won't get into the theology of that. But he says the reason that he is grieved is because he saw how great man's wickedness is on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. So here we come to the end of Paul's trying to prove to us why it is that we need a righteousness from God because there is none that is in ourselves. For Paul to explain the good news of the gospel, he must explain the radical nature of the problem of sin that is raging within us. Now he spent the last two chapters uh, doing this and now he comes to the conclusion and that's where we are in our text today. Now, to appreciate what he is trying to say, I want you to imagine yourself in the courtroom. And so Paul is building a case to show that we need a foreign righteousness, to show that there's nothing in and of ourselves uh, that could glorify God. There's no righteousness in us. There's no goodness in us. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. And so Paul has been building this case. At first he says, uh, what about those who've never uh, heard uh, the law, never heard the Ten Commandments? He basically says they're guilty. And they have heard. Uh, it is written in their hearts because they're created in the image of God. And then he, then he turns his gun on the moralist who thinks that uh, uh, being a moral person uh, will justify them before God. Uh, he says, no, that is not the case, not in God's court. And then he comes to the Jews. And, and, the, court, and the case against the Jews is we're God's people. Uh, we've been circumcised. We have been bearers of the law. And Paul says, no, they're guilty. And so he comes to first chapter, nine, uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 9, and he says this, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All. Everyone. Now, to appreciate what Paul is saying here, you need to understand the context that he said it to those who he spoke to. In that ancient day, uh, people understood what it meant to be under something. Under the tyranny of the Roman government. Under the tyranny of local officials. Under the tyranny of evil spirits. Under the, under the tyranny of ceremonies and priests and religions. They understood that. Unlike us today, who do, do, basically the way we go about things is... Well, we can go to, the, uh, to Barnes & Noble. We can get up a couple, uh, pick up a couple of self-help books, uh, books that help us uh, uh, improve ourselves, books on nutrition, uh, books uh, on financial freedom. But Paul is saying that we're all under 
sin. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves. And so the x-ray comes in and the verdict is that we're terminal. Now let me read what he says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, friends, let me tell you, it is not until the law shuts your mouth. It is not until you stand before the court of God and guilty is pronounced that you can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you, have you heard that indictment upon yourself? Have you ever really gotten the test results back uh, that I'm waiting for my mother, and I hope there'll be good, good test results back. But have you ever gotten a te- uh, have you gotten the test result back that says guilty is charged, no hope, nothing you can do. You're not only sick in your sin, but you are dead in your sin. Or is there still a little bit of the to err is human? Well, what does Paul have to say about this? Three important things to see in our text. And one is the, the first thing is the universality of sin. And then the second thing I want us to see is the description of sin. And then finally I want us to see uh, the cure of sin. The first thing we learn from Paul in his court brief is the universality of sin. That is what he says in verses 10 through 12. There's none righteous... No, not even one. No no one who understands, no one who seeks for God, for all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now the working off the premise of the Bible that it's the word of God, we see that sin is uh, an equal opportunity, opportunity employee. We see that Paul uses two universals here. Number one, he uses the word none, and then he uses the word all. None and all. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to marriage counseling, but if you go to a marriage counselor, one of the things that they say that you're never supposed to do is use universals. To say, you never, or you always, uh, you never take out the trash. Uh, You you never seem to, uh, uh, we never spend time together. And so what happens to a person when they hear this is that they feel uh, as though there's no hope. Because if you never do it, you just give up on doing it. Well, God here does not mind saying, using the universal of none and never, And the reason he wants to use this universal is to drive us to the point to where we are in despair. That there is no hope. The first thing he says is this, that there is none righteous. Paul goes back to his uh, thesis statement when he says, but we need a righteousness uh, that is from God. God. 
But the Bible here says, and God's word here says, that there is none righteous. You might say, wait a minute, I know righteous people. I know people who do things that are good. How can you say that there's none righteous? Well, let me tell you how I, 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 I experience this wrong-headed view uh, all the time from great masses of people, actually, who, um, and that is when my brothers introduce me as their preacher brother. And, of course, uh, because there's this idea that uh, religious people are good people, religious people are, are um, uh, uh, good people, then, obviously, uh, your brother, who's a minister, must be a good person. And so the end result is that uh, I can't have a relationship with, with his friends because the first time they meet me, they know that I am the brother who is the preacher. And therefore, in their minds, well, he is a fine man. I love it when I go play golf with people. And they don't know who I am. And so for the first 14, 15 holes, I'm asking them about themselves. And... Uh, and so, of course, uh, eventually they feel like they have to ask me who I am, what I do. And so about hole number 15, they say, so exactly what is it you do? And, of course, I tell them that I am a minister. And it is wonderful to watch the reaction. <laughs> uh, because uh, in, 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 in their mind that I am the good person. I am the righteous person. There are those who are bad and then there are those who are good. And if you're a minister, then you are a wonderful person. Or if you go to church, you are a wonderful person. But you see, according to the scripture, it says that there's none righteous. There are no righteous people. In a couple of weeks, I'll spend time with friends of mine who are ministers of the gospel. And uh, just this uh, last, uh, last year, before we um, got going well, uh, we were getting ready to open up in prayer, and one of, one of the ministers uh, said, I need to confess something to y'all. Because I don't want us to be together here this weekend and, uh, and uh, be deceitful. And, uh, and so I need to confess a sin to you. And so he confessed something that happened the day before. And when he confessed his sin, one of the ministers uh, raised his hand. And so the guy that was confessing his sin, he said, well, he said, do you have a question? He said, no, I don't have a question. He said, well, why are you raising your hand? He said, well, on our staff meetings, if someone is honest enough to confess their sin, then, uh, then uh, you have to raise your hand if you've committed that sin. And, of course, so the whole weekend as we uh, began to share our sins with each other, hands were going up the whole weekend. But I'll tell you this, it was two or three of the most powerful days of my life. Why? Because we're not coming together to establish our own righteousness and who has the most people, who's the most godly pastor, but we're coming together as beggars, confessing our sin, and the Holy Spirit working in that context to bring a power that comes when we look to Jesus Christ. Now, I can give you another example of that, one that's very difficult. Uh, just this past uh, week, uh, I am on Facebook. 
And I get, uh, if you're familiar with Facebook, you get the, you know, your friends on one side and then they have their comments or things to click on to. Another minister friend of mine, one I haven't seen in a while, we're very close. He sends a note or a, um, what do you call it? A post. So I said, oh, well, there's a, there's a so-and-so. It'll be like John sending me one or, or Jeff Thompson sending me one uh, or some of you other wonderful people. I clicked. As soon as I clicked, it was, I should not have clicked. Fortunately, my wife was there. I said, uh, Mary Beth, we got a problem here. And, uh, of course, she changes uh, the password. And, um, and, of course, I said, now, oh, I've been hacked. It's out there. So, the next uh, morning, that was in the evening, the next morning I spoke to uh, a friend of mine about this, and he said, well, just, uh, well, all you need to do is just put, put a post out there that, hey, you know, explaining what happened. And, of course, uh, I told him I couldn't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, well, because that would be hypocrisy. Because, you see, according to our text, there's none righteous. There's no, no, there's not one. There are no good people. Well, he goes on to say, not only are there none that are righteous, but he goes on to say that there's none who seeks after God. There's none righteous, there's none who seeks after God. He begins to speak of the direction here. Many people say, well, of course we seek after God. Jesus Christ says, seek and you shall find. And yet, we see that here our text seems to contradict that because it says uh, there's none who seeks after God. No, not even one. But Paul is saying here that the human heart is not inclined to do that. When Jesus speaks of those who are seeking and knocking, it is actually those who by God's grace have come to a point to where they see their own sin by his grace. The verdict has been read. There is no hope. And then they seek. And then they come. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way. He said uh, that he was the most reluctant Christian to ever enter the kingdom of God uh, saying that uh, me seeking God was like saying the cat was seeking, the mouse was seeking the cat. Augustine speaks of God as being the hound of heaven. Our tendency is to always move away, whether it's being bad or whether it's being good. The reason that we're bad is because we don't want God to have any part of the things that we want to do. And the reason that we're good is so we might get the benefits from Knowing God. And so, the reason uh, that we seek God often is because of the benefits versus knowing Him. And so, our text is very clear that there's none who seeks after God. And then there's another universal. He says, all have gone astray. All have gone astray. Now, we don't like it when people say, use the word all, about other people. 
You know, you know all those Italians, uh, all those rednecks, uh, all those country club people. But you see, God is not afraid to say about us, the universal, that all have gone astray. And he goes on to say that we have become unprofitable. We are like the five-day-old fish in the marketplace. My dad used to say something that uh, I've taken to heart when he said that you cannot make chicken salad out of chicken feathers. Except I think he used a little bit different language that was there. (laughs) This is who we are, apart from God's grace. So we see the universality of sin, but notice also the description of sin. In verses 13 through 18, he uses body parts. And if you'll notice, many of the body parts are related to the throat and the other related to the feet. For he says in verse 13 that their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their past and ruin and misery are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Yes, you see, God begins, uh, he, Paul speaks of, of, of body parts, and he, and he begins with the throat and the mouth and the tongue and the lips. Because you see, because we're corrupt, because we're lost, because we're unprofitable, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him. They're the things which come out of a man. The things we do, or the things we say, the attitudes of the heart. Does your tongue bring life or does your tongue bring death? Uh, within the body of Christ, is, are our tongues used to do that which edifies and builds up or are our tongues used to tear down and to destroy? We had a gentleman who, we, who came to Redeemer for quite some time. And he, uh, uh, he immediately... Uh, I mean, over time, he, he eventually came to Christ or made profession of Christ. And uh, so uh, he was resistant to come to church, but one day he came to church and uh, he enjoyed it. He continued to come for two or three weeks. But then after church, one Sunday, he heard one believer say something against another believer. And he walked out the door and never returned. You see, our... our our tongues, our mouths, they say the things which come from our heart. But he also speaks not only of the, the mouth and the tongue, but he also speaks of the feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Our feet are to be bringing the gospel. They're to be shed with the gospel to bring life. But in turn, our feet often bring misery and death. So we see the universality of sin, the description of sin... But what is the cure for sin? Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth 
may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Paul, again, imagine him in the courtroom. And his goal is to drive us to the point where we are guilty as charged. So Paul now lays down the verdict. And what is the the goal of his verdict? He says, uh, so that every mouth uh, may be shut up. For some of us, uh, we... We begin to make excuses about why we're the way we are. We try to justify ourselves. We try to, to, to speak uh, things that uh, would, would, would put ourselves right with God. And the Lord would say, as it were, the law says, be quiet. You have nothing to say. And then on the other hand, there are those who feel bad about themselves. There are those who accuse themselves. Those who say, I'm not worthy And what does the law of God say? The law of God says, shut up. It's not about that as well. And so the case is closed. The verdict is that there's none righteous, no, not one. They are altogether guilty. In conclusion, let me tell you, my my father uh, told me about a dream that he had. And uh, he dreamed that he waked up in a courtroom, and that courtroom was his judgment day. And uh, my father said that he was, uh, the, uh, I think, the defendant, yes. And the prosecuting attorney was Satan, who was in a slick outfit. Uh, and so Satan gets up. And he begins to rehearse my father's life in accusation after accusation after accusation. Uh, My father's uh, uh, thoughts were, well, you know, what about those uh, good things that I did? But he began to take the things that he did that were good and he began to show him how they were not for the glory of God. And so he knew that he was guilty. Guilty as charged. But then... He saw the defense attorney, his defense attorney, and it was Jesus Christ. And so when he got up, he went before uh, the judge, his father, and he said, uh, I demand justice for my client. And of course, uh, dad said he was a little nervous about that. But then when he began Uh, to plead the case on behalf of my father. He said, I have paid for those sins. All those things that he has done, I was condemned by the law. And though he deserves to die, I have died for him. I demand justice. That is what Christ has done. The work of the law has condemned us. But the work of Christ is to make us new and to give us life. Do you know this, Lord Jesus? Has the law done its work to bring you to the point where you say there's no hope save in Jesus Christ? I would encourage you to come to him today. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would 
calls us to see that things are out of control. That your word and your law has done its work. That uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. That we're all guilty and we're all in deep need of Christ's work on our behalf. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in our lives to cause us to see who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to work this morning. And now, Lord, we pray that as we come to commune together that you would work in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.